looked at with regard to those who betray. There's some question about the historical situation of this psalm, and we'll, we'll talk more about that in just a moment. But uh, until we get there, I just want to uh, take a brief moment to look at how this psalm is put together. There are some who think that this psalm is two parts, and one of them was sort of included by accident. Uh, obviously, that wouldn't be the... Uh, the conservative view or where we would be coming from, but part of the reason for that is there seems to be a little bit of a, a repetition or a almost a question of there being a, um, a, a sort of an abrupt break. If you look at verse 19, there we see this word selah, which often is associated as, as best we know with a kind of a pause in the flow of the psalm, but it seems to come right in the middle of a phrase. Uh, but if you look closer, the end of verse 19 talks about God. And then the end of verse 19 talks about those who are evil, and which connects well with verse 20 and 21. So if we look at how this psalm is put together, it appears that if we look at verses 1 through 3, Give ear to my prayer, O God, and do not hide yourself from my supplication, Give heed to me and answer me. I am restless in my complaint and am surely distracted because of the voice of the enemy, because of the pressure of the wicked, for they bring down trouble upon me, and in anger they bear a grudge against me. And then look at verse 16. As for me, I shall call upon God, and the Lord will save me. Evening and morning and at noon I will complain and murmur, and he will hear my voice. He will redeem my soul in peace from the battle which is against me. For they are many which strive with me. God will hear and answer them, even the one who sits enthroned from of old. And so there's a parallel between verses 1 through 3 and verses 16 through 19. The difference being that at the end of verses 1 through 3, there is a, not a certainty about God intervening. But then in verses 18 and 19, there definitely seems to be more of a sense of God definitely hearing. And then... We look at verses 4 through 8. My heart is in anguish within me, and the terrors of death have fallen upon me. Fear and trembling come upon me, and horror has overwhelmed me. I said, Oh, that I had wings like a dove. I would fly away and be at rest. Behold, I would wander far away. I would lodge in the wilderness. I would hasten to my place of refuge from the stormy wind and tempest. Why is it that his heart is in anguish? Look at verse 12. For it is not an enemy who reproaches me, then I could bear it, nor it is one who hates me, who has exalted himself against me, then I could hide myself from him. But it is you, a man my equal, my companion and my familiar friend. We who had sweet fellowship together walked in the house of God in the throng. Let death come deceitfully upon them. Let them go down alive to Sheol, for evil is in their dwelling, in their midst. So we have this expression of anguish in verses 4 through 8. And the reason for the anguish, I think, is given in verses 12 through 15, along with what he's asking God to do. And so then, if, if uh, 1 through 3 and 16 through 19 could be paired together, if 4 through 8 and 12 to 15 could be paired together, then perhaps the central part of this psalm is found in verses 9 through 11. Confuse, O Lord, divide their tongues, for I have seen violence and strife in the city, 
Day and night they go around her upon her walls, and iniquity and mischief are in her midst. Destruction is in her midst, oppression and deceit do not depart from her streets. We have to ask ourselves <coughs> if the traditional inscription found at the top of the psalm is correct that David is lamenting a circumstance in which he sees the city full of violence and strife, full of iniquity and mischief, full of destruction, oppression, and deceit. Does this fit with any of the experiences of David's life that we know? And some have said that the traditional inscription is wrong and it's perhaps a lament of someone like Jeremiah. Others have said that there are parallels with the life of David in his circumstance of having been betrayed by Absalom. So I want us to turn over to 2 Samuel 15 and see if perhaps there is a parallel between that passage and what we just looked at briefly in the psalm. And then we'll come back and explore the psalm in more detail. 2 Samuel chapter 15. At the beginning of 2 Samuel 15, it says, Absalom had a chariot and horses and 50 men as runners. Absalom used to rise early and stand beside the way to the gate, and when any man had a suit to come to the king for judgment, Absalom would call to him and say, From what city are you? From one of the tribes of Israel, he would say. And Absalom would say, See, your claims are good and right, but no man listens to you on the part of the king. Moreover, Absalom would say, Oh, that one would appoint me judge in the land, then every man who has any suit or cause could come to me, and I would give him justice. And when a man came near to prostrate himself before him, he would put out his hand and take hold of him and kiss him. In this manner, Absalom dealt with all Israel who came to the king for judgment. So Absalom stole away the hearts of the men of Israel. Now it came about at the end of forty years that Absalom said to the king, Please let me go and pay my vow, which I have vowed to the Lord in Hebron. For your servant vowed a vow when I was living at Geshur and Aram, saying, If the Lord brings me back to Jerusalem, then I will indeed serve the king. The king said to him, Go in peace. So he arose and went to Hebron. But Absalom sent spies throughout all the tribes of Israel, saying, As soon as you hear the sound of the trumpet, then you shall say, Absalom is king in Hebron. Then two hundred men went with Absalom from Jerusalem, who were invited and went innocently, and they did not know anything. And Absalom sent for Ahithophel the Gilonite, David's counselor from his city Gilo, while he was offering the sacrifices. And the conspiracy was strong, for the people increased continually with Absalom. And then we see uh, a little bit later in this chapter, we won't read all of it for sake of time, but uh, there is this uh, blowing of the trumpet, the betrayal by Absalom, and then uh, people try to bring the Ark of the Covenant out to David, but he has them return it to Jerusalem. David goes up the ascent of the Mount of Olives and weeps as he goes, and the people are going and weeping. Someone tells David in verse 31, Ahithophel is among the conspirators with Absalom. And David said, O Lord, I pray, make the counsel of Ahithophel foolishness. And then uh, there's this uh, little account about Hushai in verses 32 to 37. As you know, Absalom is defeated. God uses his bad counsel to deceive Absalom. And then Absalom is killed. In the course of the rebellion, David weeps, 
and then David is restored as king, but not until chapter 19. So let's pause and ask ourselves a moment. Does David's does the description, I should say rather, of verses 9 through 11 fit Absalom's betrayal? That there is violence and strife, there are those going around to her upon her walls, iniquity, mischief, destruction, oppression, and deceit. If you were David, and you found out what your son had been doing for an extended period of time, would you have a sense of betrayal that he expresses in these verses? I think that there is a legitimate connection between 2 Samuel 15 and this passage. Now, um, it is possible that David is referring to some other circumstance, but of all the times that David experienced treachery, this is perhaps the greatest. And although Absalom seems to be the chief character in 2 Samuel 15, it could be that David felt even more betrayed by this person, this man Ahithophel, who had given him counsel. There is perhaps, uh, there was perhaps a wrong tendency on David's part to excuse things that Absalom had done, right? We see that during the course of Absalom's life. But, here's someone who had been a trusted advisor to David, who, as it says even in 2 Samuel 15, was offering sacrifices to God, who could have accompanied David to the temple, as it says in verse 14, we who had sweet fellowship together, walking in the house of God, walking in the house of God in the throng, has now allied himself with David's son in opposition to his rule and has betrayed him. And so we look at, at how all these pieces fit together, and I think we would have to say that if that is the passage that this psalm is expressing the emotions connected with the circumstances, then I think we would have to say uh, we can understand where the psalmist is coming from. Why is he crying out to God? Why is he restless in his complaint and surely distracted? If David composed this as he is fleeing, perhaps in connection with his ascension of the Mount of Olives, his soul would be in anguish. He would find it difficult to express the words for the circumstance that he was going through. And I don't know if you've experienced anything like this. I don't think that I've experienced anything like this, that a, a close friend, a family member, someone like that, has betrayed, as in, like, let's overthrow you, me as the king and, and that sort of thing. We don't have that exact parallel circumstance. However... If you found yourself in that circumstance, how would you deal with it? What would your response be? David's response toward Ahithophel, or the psalmist's response, we should say, toward the enemy that bears a grudge against him and bringing down trouble upon him, is, first of all, to express to God anguish, terror, fear, horror, a desire to escape the situation. If I had wings like a dove, I would fly. I would lodge in the wilderness. I would hasten to my place of refuge from the stormy wind and tempest. There's a desire to escape the circumstance, and I think that's a common desire when we face a circumstance that is overwhelming 
and sorrowful and beyond our ability at the immediate moment to fix. But he recognizes he can't solve this on his own. Whether it's the betrayal of Absalom or some unrecorded incident in his reign as king, he says, God, you're the one who has to fix this. Confuse, O Lord, divide their tongues. Possibly calling to mind the imagery of the Tower of Babel. If God judged those who rebelled against him then, certainly he could do so once more, perhaps not in as wide a scope and not to as great of a degree, but he could thwart the plans of those who had betrayed. Was David right in calling down God's punishment on those who behaved wickedly? Well, look at what they have done in verses 9 through 11. Violence, strife, iniquity, mischief, destruction, oppression, and deceit. Are those characteristics of those who are pleasing God or those who are not? Clearly we'd say those are characteristics of those who are not pleasing God. And so I think David, as the king, is justified in coming before God and saying, God, here's a circumstance that cannot be resolved in my own strength. I need you to intervene. And though he does not say anything here about it, I think we'd have to say, zooming out on David's life, and looking at his attitude toward Absalom and certain others that he tolerated in, in closeness to him, if this was the present circumstance of the city, at least part of it was his own fault. Because he did not hold Absalom accountable for wrong actions. He did not hold some of his other uh, military leaders and folks like that accountable for some of their sinful actions. And so there is perhaps in this some measure of acknowledgement that if it is this way, and if I've contributed to it, I'm not the one who can fix it. And so he cries out to God for that. And then he heightens the nature of the betrayal in verses 12 through 15. It's not an enemy. You expect your enemies to betray you. That's what enemies do. Not one who hated him. If it's one who hated him, he'd have some expectation of it, and he could hide himself. He could be warned against it. But it's someone that he trusted, someone that he worshipped with, who it then betrayed him. Verse 15 is perhaps a reference to God's judgment of Korah's rebellion. Here's one who perhaps had not offered strange fire or the wrong type of incense, but one who had worshipped God wrongly because he comes worshipping and in his heart is a, a measure of treachery, a, a willingness to betray the person that he's supposed to be loyal to. And so again, a call for God's judgment, perhaps as God judged Korah and those who rebelled with him. And then he returns in verses 16 through 19, to his original plea in verses 1 through 3, calling upon God. Not just calling upon God in a moment, but calling upon God repeatedly, evening and morning and at noon. He says, I will complain and murmur, and we have to ask ourselves, is it wrong to complain before God? I think we would have to say that when the Israelites complained, they complained at God, 
And the psalmist here is complaining to God. So the difference being the attitude of the Israelites when they're out in the wilderness wandering is, God, we don't like what you're doing. The attitude here is, God, there's a circumstance that if you're sovereign, you have brought about, and I can't fix it, and I need your help. You see the difference in attitude between those two types of complaints. The same thing with that word murmuring. The murmuring doesn't necessarily have to have a negative connotation. There's the murmuring of the people of Israel in the wilderness, but there's also a murmuring that is just perhaps a, a reciting or a continuing in prayer that would be an appropriate response to this type of circumstance. And then there's this note of optimism in verses 18 and 19. End of 17, He will hear my voice. He will redeem my soul in peace. There are many. God will hear and answer them, even the one who sits enthroned from of old. God has the ability to deal with this circumstance that overwhelms me and breaks my heart and threatens almost His very existence. What do we do then with the second half of verse 19 down to verse 23? I think this goes back to a description of the evil one, an appropriate response, and then God's response. So what's the description of the evil one? With whom, or the one with whom there is no change and who do not fear God? How is that person described? He has put forth his hands against those who are at peace. He has violated his covenant. His speech was smoother than butter, but his heart was war. His words were softer than oil, yet they were drawn swords. Would that be an apt description of one who had been a trusted counselor and then betrayed the one that he was supposed to be loyal to? I think it would be. What then is the psalmist's advice to those who have a burden, an overwhelming burden, of having been betrayed and harmed and hurt by those that were supposed to be those you could trust? Cast your burden upon the Lord, and He will sustain you. He will never allow the righteous to be shaken. What then is God's response to those who behave wickedly in this way? You, God, will bring them down to the pit of destruction. Men of bloodshed and deceit will not live out half their days, but I will trust in you. So how, what does this have to do with us today? It would be tempting for us to say, well, it's just 1 Peter 5, 7. Cast your cares upon God because He cares for you, which is true. I think the immediate meaning of this verse, particularly verse 22, what's the burden that's being experienced? It's the burden of betrayal of someone that you love, someone that you trust, turning on you. And if you experience that, what then ought you to do? Go to God about it. Because that sort of circumstance would open up all sorts of questions like, was there something that I did wrong that made this person act this way? Was there some way that I deserve this person's actions? There would be a, a great deal of uncertainty in that kind of circumstance. There would be a great deal of, what should I do? God, however, has the power to work in such a situation, God is the one to whom we must go if we experience this kind of anguish in our souls. I want to take you briefly to a passage in the life of Christ that I think parallels the experience of the psalmist here. And assuming 
that the inscription is correct and that it is in the life of David. There are a number of parallels that can be drawn between the life of David and the life of Jesus. Turn to Turn to um, we'll get to Matthew 27 in just a moment. Turn to Matthew 26 verse 14. Then one of the twelve, named Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and said, What are you willing to give me to betray him to you? And they weighed out thirty pieces of silver to him. From then on, he began looking for a good opportunity to betray Jesus. Skip down to verse 20. When evening came, Jesus was reclining at the table with the twelve disciples. As they were eating, he said, Truly I say to you that one of you will betray me. Being deeply grieved, they each one began to say to him, Surely not I, Lord. And he answered, He who dipped his hand with me in the bowl is the one who will betray me. The Son of Man is to go, just as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been good for that man if he had not been born. And Judas, who was betraying him, said, Surely it is not I, Rabbi. Jesus said to him, You have said it yourself. Drop down to verse 47. While he was still speaking, behold, Judas, one of the twelve, came up accompanied by a large crowd with swords and clubs, and he came from the chief priests and elders of the people. Now he who was betraying him gave them a sign, saying, Whomever I kiss, he is the one sees him. Immediately Judas went to Jesus and said, Hail, Rabbi, and kissed him. And Jesus said to him, Friend, do what you have come for. And they came and laid hands on Jesus and seized him. Go to verse one of chapter 27. When morning came, all the chief priests and the elders of the people conferred together against Jesus to put him to death. And they bound him and led him away and delivered him to Pilate the governor. Then when Judas, who had betrayed him, saw that he had been condemned, he felt remorse and returned the thirty pieces of silver to the chief priests and elders, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. But they said, What is that to us? See to that yourself. And he threw the pieces of silver into the temple sanctuary and departed, and he went away and he hanged himself. So, what's the connection between Judas' betrayals of Jesus and the betrayal that we see in Psalm 55? The parallel is this. There is a measure of anguish in the betrayal, perhaps slightly different for Jesus in the fact that he knew and anticipated that it would take place as a fulfillment of God's plan but a sense of sorrow nonetheless. There is a recognition that God is the one who is going to address it because Jesus does nothing to Judas, right? Jesus could have said, you know, Peter, that sword that you're waving around, get rid of Judas, he betrayed me. But he doesn't do that. But does God's judgment fall on Judas nonetheless? Judas is so overwhelmed by guilt that he goes out and he takes his own life. And this is an assumption, but I want you to hear me out for a moment. If Jesus' disciples were roughly around his same age, Judas would have probably been in his 30s. What does, what does in another place in Scripture say a typical age would be for people to live? 70 years. 
what did the Psalms say with regard to those who are experienced and express treachery? They'll not live out half their days. Again, I'm making connections here, some of which are assumptions, and I'm not going to say definitively that it's what the text says, but there are themes here that are very clear connections between Absalom's betrayal of, of David, along with Ahithophel, David's close counselor and friend, the experience of the psalmist in Psalm 55, and the betrayal of Jesus in Matthew's Gospel. One last that we won't turn to, but that I'll just give to you. Think about Paul. What does Paul say with regard to Demas? Demas has forsaken me, having loved this present world. Now, it was not a betrayal in the sense of the exact same thing that happened with Jesus, but it was a betrayal nonetheless. Here's someone who had seemed to believe the gospel, who had served alongside Paul, and had wandered away from the faith. Why do I draw the connections between all those different things? We read the psalm, and it seems like something very disconnected from our lives. We look at the story of David and we say, yeah, but I'm not a king. I don't have an Absalom. I don't have a close counselor who betrays me like David's friend did. I'm not Jesus. I don't have a Judas Iscariot in my life. But when we draw the connection of someone like Paul and we see someone who seems to have trusted Christ and seems to have followed God perhaps for a long time and that person decides to betray you and seemingly God and all of these other people that they knew, what does that do for your faith? Can I raise questions? Yeah. So what would an appropriate response be? Cry out to God because he's the one who can deal with it. And I'm not sure that we have quite the same authority as if it's, if it's something where it's more of a the last situation I just described. I don't know that it's quite the same degree of betrayal as someone who is trying to kill David or other characters in Scripture. And so perhaps the nature of our prayer would be less calling down God's judgment immediately upon them and more, God, I ask that you would bring this person to repentance with a full acknowledgement that, Lord, if you don't bring them to repentance, they're going to be under your judgment. But in this way, you and I can respond properly to a circumstance of betrayal without trying to take matters in our own hands, without doubting God's goodness or plan or all of those sorts of things in the midst of that kind of circumstance, and instead seeking God's help, casting our fears and anxieties and uncertainties in connection with that circumstance on God, being confident that God is with his people and God can deal with the evil that is present in that kind of a circumstance. Maybe you've never had that happen. Someone that you love, betray your trust, harm you deeply in some way, 
I mean, since we're all here, no one has betrayed us to death as Judas did with Christ. And yet, there are lesser betrayals that may take place. How are you going to respond in a right way in light of this psalm? Cry out to God. Let Him deal with the situation and express confidence that He can deliver and work that sort of circumstance according to His purpose. Our desire, our prayer, would be that that person would come to repentance. But that's not always God's purpose or God's desire. And so we come before God humbly, seeking His will, seeking for Him to work in those kinds of circumstances. Let's go now.